Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to another episode of The Creative Minority. Here we hope to convene conversations that engage in contemporary issues such as in the realm of philosophy, psychology, and today we have medicine. And so I'm delighted today to have our to have our esteemed guest, Dr. Asim Padella, who is a professor with tenor um, of emergency medicine, bioethics, and the medical humanities. He's published a number of articles and books related to the topic of Islam and bioethics and medicine. Um, and he's authored over 120 peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters. And he serves in an editorial capacity for the Encyclopedia of Islamic Bioethics, American Journal of Bioethics, and the International Journal of Islam, and, and many others. I know he wouldn't like me to mention all of them. Um, he has also co-edited a, re co a recent book titled Islam and Biomedicine, um, which is a compilation of many different articles uh, on the subject uh, of Islam and biomedicine. So thank you so much, Dr. Austin, for joining us. Barakallah fikum. It is great to be here. Alhamdulillah. So today, inshallah, I'd like to touch upon the topic of Islamic bioethics. Um, it's a topic which I hear, uh, I hear not so often, but one which I feel, especially in the realm of fiqh, there's a lot of very interesting questions um, that emerge from it. You know, what is the ruling on organ donation, for instance? What is the ruling of if a person decides not to do chemotherapy, but that could most likely lead to death um, and so forth? And now abortion is obviously one which has become uh, which has been around for a while, but has now become quite prominent. So just as an introductory, Dr. Austin, do you mind just giving an explanation, an introduction to the realm of Islamic bioethics? Sure. Alhamdulillah. So it's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, I do some work on Islamic bioethics. And I think for us to think about that uh, as an academic, I have to break the terms down a bit um, of what Islamic bioethics is or what it could be. Uh, and we have a conjunction of two terms, right? Islam and bioethics. So if I were to give you the academic definition or one that I've written in a book, it would be that it is a discourse between the tradition of Islam and ethical or moral issues arising from biomedical practice, right? Um, or even biomedical science. Uh, that would be the academic definition. And, and the way I say that is because it's a discourse, meaning that it has a history right? And inshallah, we'll have a future. Uh, and we are participants in that discourse. The thing that you mentioned, I think, interestingly, and I'm going to start off with what it is not, right? Like we often do uh, uh, when we try definitions, what it is not, it is not fiqh of medicine. Mm -hmm. Although in the main mindset of individuals, we start off thinking about the fiqh of medicine. I think we do that interestingly, because we're very comfortable with the notion that our tradition has a very highly developed science of how to understand divine intent and will right um and by doing so then prescribe for individuals how to live their lives which would be islamic law therefore we automatically say okay islamic law is the uh sole determinant of how to live therefore when we think about ethics that's how to live therefore fiqh is what we need to look at but i would say that that's not necessarily the case because when you think about bioethics right the meaning of islam with bioethics bioethics is a in the contemporary age is a field that only has a history perhaps 60 years 70 years 
which is a, a field that involves both moral philosophy, legal sort of epistemology, um, law, positive law, ethics, as we think about ethics, right, how to be, uh, it has multiple tiers. So there's policy level ethics, there's, right, uh, individual level ethics in the conversation, there's guidelines. So it's a field that's very much, uh, it's very broad, more expansive potentially than what we think about as just what is a fiqh question. The fiqh question is, can I or can I not do something does it accord with divine intent and will and and like flourishing right and human flourishing well ethics is more than that even in our islamic tradition we think ethics is more than that so as i said what is it not so it is not immediately mapping one to one fiqh of medicine uh is not equal to islamic bioethics but what islamic bioethics would be is a, as i said is a discourse that involves aspects of fiqh of medicine right aspects of adab right how do i not only how can i do something but how do i best do something right and then aspects of what i would say um the end goal uh, right so what is the goal of my action so it involves three things the agent level action right act-based morality fiqh the i mean sorry the act-based morality fiqh agent-based adab and then the third would be goal what do i want to achieve which some people would say maybe a little bit of maqasid. We can get into that if you like. Uh, inshallah, I have a book coming out on maqasid biomedicine. I don't think maqasid exactly does it, at least how we think right now, because it still resides around the ambit of fiqh. But what are the goals you want to achieve? So that's how bioethics and Islamic bioethics has to think about it, as, a, as a multiplicity of views around what should be actions involving these those three dimensions. Okay, you so, this, me this is... so I spoke a long time, so please now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I just wanted to say, you know, I'm glad you made that correction early on because, in my mind, when, usually when we people who aren't in the field think of bioethics, they're really talking about, you know, what are things that are ethical, uh, ethical in the medical sphere and what are things that aren't. And from the Muslim standpoint, they're usually thinking of fiqh. So, what is the ruling on this? Can I do this or not? Can I do this or not? And so it's interesting that from the outset you're mentioning that there's more than just the fiqh. Uh, bioethics is more than just fiqh. Yeah, if, if Islam was to meet bioethics, right, which is what the whole idea is, right? When we say something, uh, Islamic finance, we're saying there's a world of finance out there. There's discipline of finance out there. There are ways things are happening in the financial realm. What does the Islamic tradition have to say about that, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're doing this model of, I'll have two models to share with you, but if you're doing a model of Islam visiting bioethics, what ends up happening is we say, okay, well, the thing that we know can visit is fiqh and a scholar of fiqh, and so we'll rule it based on what Muslims can do. But then have you thought about how society should deal with those things? Mm -hmm. Have you thought about non-Muslim actors? Have you thought about beyond the act of the individual? What does that mean for the healthcare system? Potentially not, right? Mm -hmm. So we're only partially visiting the world of bioethics. As I said, bioethics is a lot of things. It's an academic field, it's a practice, it's multiplicity. And to address each of those levels requires we think not, we think use a broader lens of fiqh. Fiqh is an understanding, not fiqh as just a legal ruling. Mm -hmm. um, and then if we're going to say the opposite, okay, it's not, it's not us visiting the realm of bioethics. We want to construct up an ethical paradigm from the tradition of Islam. You know, Islamic ethics has more than just law. As I just mm -hmm. said, adab, you know, tasawwuf, akhlaqiyat. I mean, we have a lot of different registers and then we think about the morality of actions. We have to bring all of that together. We don't do that either. So on both ends, right, whether it's a visitation model, visiting the world of bioethics, or if it's a native model, we want to construct up an Islamic bioethical framework, we shortchange both. 
-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to convey, right? So, so it, is, it, is, it is not fiqh of medicine, but even if it was an Islamic bioethics, we don't use all of Islam to adjudicate that. And to mm -hmm. me, those failures lead to two things. One, that we don't have a response to contemporary society, right? Two, it leaves Muslim agents, be they patients, physicians, chaplains, imams, only seeing part of the whole. Hmm. And, and I think that that makes us, right, in, in the words of some, so when we talk about uh, transforming the world, we can't transform. We just simply react, and we react only partially at a one time. So we live in the realm of contingency, right, as opposed to in the realm of aspirational, transformational aspects. What can Islam offer the world? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so Dr. Awesome, one thing that I realized is with many of these new sciences that have begun to emerge in recent in recent years, whether it's Islamic psychology, Islamic finance, um, Islamic medicine, prophetic medicine, many of these disciplines, um, the way many lay people understand it is that they take the paradigm as it exists from the West, not understanding all the different ideologies that are embedded within it as its first principles. And then they take certain aspects of Islam and then they, they place it within Islam and they say this is a discipline. So, for instance, you know, um, I, I wrote a I wrote a I wrote an article on uh, Islamic psychology, um, just condensing some of the ideas of Dr. Malik Bedri and his book, The Dilemma of the Muslim Psychologist. And I just I just relayed his arguments. And this is the founder of the discipline of Islamic psychology. And um, he laid out his criticisms of, of psychology today, of Western psychology in the 60s and 70s. And a lot of Muslim students in the realms of psychology uh, critique my response. And their critique was based on this idea that they believe that Western psychology was Islamic. And so they would take ideas in Western psychology, such as positive and negative reinforcement, and say, oh, well, this is paradise, this is hell. So clearly this is Islamic. Right? But they forget that the paradigm that they're operating in oftentimes has these first principles. So with bioethics, um, is this something that we're seeing as well, that uh, Muslims are starting to just project ideas of Islam, or are they starting to begin from the ground up onwards? Very good question. So I appreciate the clarification. So I, I have two ways to, to respond to that, I think. One is we have to recognize that people need to live a tradition that does not have the ability to address people's questions in pressing moments is a tradition that has no motive force upon human behavior, mm -hmm. right? So, so as I said previously, okay, we live in contingencies, but you have to live in contingencies because someone's trying to live, right? We can't wait for the fully baked response, um, particularly in bioethics when there are issues of uh, that are really pressing and urgent. You have to answer the question very quickly, um, or or at least write some response quickly. So I think that there's a functional sort of need. And so I wouldn't critique the idea for, per se that that it's a that we should be responsive to the paradigm that exists and help fit in some Islamic morality where we can because people need to live, right? And the job of ulama, I would say, in the broad sense, right? Uh, or it's just, it's just a fuqaha is to lift up the burden of sin from individuals where there is no clear notion that there will be sin. And even if that means some, let's say, not the best logical reasoning involved, if they do that, and I think that's that's important. That's why fatwa is. Fatwa is not a hukum. It's, a, it's an exceptional circumstance. Okay. 
but if we continue to live in that then the generations behind uh, behind us don't see anything above right these are instruments to get at a goal as i said right but if you just keep on using instruments you ever see what the goal might be then you have no vision of what that looks like and i think that's the issue that we think it's okay we think it's okay forever to live in this contingency and that's one critique right so i agree with you in that sort of domain that hey look we have to start thinking about first principles of the notion of the human being that's embedded within psychology for example right or the notion of governance that's embedded within islamic political science right or whatever or even in the way that healthcare is structured in society right when we talk about ethics of bioethics well how mm -hmm. should we think about the notion of health and well-being right these these incredibly important concepts right living and dying definitions of life and death before to actually then think about what that looks like in society. So I agree that that's a intellectual project from first principles up that needs to be undertaken. I wouldn't dismiss the incredibly important on the spot, right? Answers, mm -hmm. right? So there's, so we would say there's strategic thinking and tactical thinking. Tactically, I got to address the issue now, but okay. I need strategical thinking to move forward. But, but I would, push back against a modern a modern Muslim notion right now. Two, one of them is we got to throw everything out, right? We got to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. I find it very romantic notion from individuals, both of a scholarly class or the professional class or lay people who simply reject everything because we think, right, that everything is embedded within a worldview that is an antithetical to Islam. I say that because Islam didn't come to reject everything that came before it, right? The Rasulullah didn't do that in his practice, right? And the Quran didn't detail everything. He allowed things to happen. Orf was, is, is, still remains a legitimate source of law, not the first, not the second, but remains. Right? As the Qaeda says. So my point is for us to do that is problematic right? To throw everything out. The other thing is that then we think we have something to replace it with. And I would say that's also problematic. Mm. You, we're going to create Islamic state. Tell me, how are you going to deal with the financial system? Period. You will, you can't, we don't have one. We have nothing to replace. So there's a very easy to construct, to deconstruct. It's very hard to construct. And oftentimes to construct, we don't even know the tools by which we would construct. So it's, it's very easy for people to say, hey, look, everything is wrong. They think about corrupt, they're corrupt, and society is you know, capitalistic, and so on and so forth. Well, there are Muslims who thought Islamic communism was the thing way to go when capitalism was on the rise. What mm -hmm. happened to that? Islamic socialism, right? We, we, we have always had these fads. So I think that we should be very cognizant. If you're going to critique a field, know the tools, instruments, and knowledge frameworks of that field. If you're going to then replace it with something Islamic, quote unquote, then know the epistemology of Islam within it, insert it inside and out, and recognize that everything wasn't to be labeled Islamic, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'll give you an example of why that comes in. We all like to talk about these days theology, and we talk about, right, Maturi, the Ashari, and Mutazli thought. Well, if the idea is that the only the lawgiver labels things as Islamic, right? By fiat, he labels things Islamic. And we know there's only certain canonical texts that give that 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 measure. Then everything else you say is non-Islamic. I mean, would you say that that everything we do is non-Islamic? Then there were in our tradition individuals who said if it doesn't reside, like how it doesn't reside in the text specifically, then that's you live your life, right? So my point is, our tradition had these. If but when people are critiquing, throw the baby out with the bathwater, they won't say let's go and be like you know the authority people and let's uh, or the the school and 
let's take Ibn Hazm. They won't say that because they're inconsistent in their logic. But I understand what you're saying, Dr. Austin, but from what I hear from people who do make this argument that we need to throw everything out, they're usually people who aren't deep within the discipline. They're usually outsiders who are usually making these broad statements. Uh, that, oh, No, no, no. I mean, the COVID pandemic showed that clearly. You can go there if you like. Mm -hmm. But we Give had individuals from our scholarly class engaging in conversations saying that right the pharmaceutical company is out for money okay that might be the case but that does not mean throw everything out they give you stop taking the panadol for mm -hmm. the medicine okay. right just don't take the vaccine right you see my point like there was a strained logic let's talk about the you want to read papers let's talk about papers let's talk about the epistemology right let's talk about epi epistemology and then epidemiology read the paper let's talk about how it's come together how we think about statistics but no notion of statistics Someone said this, someone said that, they're equivalent. Mm -hmm. right? This is the modern crisis. You set up the person, the sheikh on Google, who gives a good YouTube talk as the same as someone spent 20 years. You wouldn't do that in a fiqh, but you would do that in every other field. And mm -hmm. I want to get off my soapbox, but I'm telling you that for me, right, if you're going to have a full-baked critique, do what Imam uh, Ghazali uh, did. Before he wrote the tahafut, what was the first thing? I'm going to understand the field from inside and 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 have peer review of what I wrote about the field so that I'm not misgiven. So basically what you're saying is now that you've written all these books, you're 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 gonna write your rod soon. Your reputation. <laughs> <laughs> I need to write a rod. But 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 you see my point. That is our tradition. We don't mm -hmm. take things and just say, you know, uh, a surface level. We go deep mm -hmm. and we have pillars of that in our tradition. It's mm -hmm. a discourse. Mm -hmm. So I guess the, the ultimate thing is there's a balance. Um, and like the Prophet wasallam said, al-hikmah right? So wherever you find wisdom, you take it because it's most belonging to the believer. So uh, I'm not in a position to challenge you in any of these. Uh, <laughs> but I think the word you just said, that his qawl is very interesting. What is the word you said? Hikmah. Ah, what's hikmah? Wisdom. Right. Okay. Let's say English, but it, he didn't say ilm. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Yeah. He didn't say information. Let's just be English. He didn't say information. He didn't say data. He said wisdom. Wisdom is implicative of knowledge where you find wise usage of knowledge, right? That's how Muslims should be. That's we find wise people, not informational streams, not data stores. Mm -hmm. So it requires to move beyond. This is my point. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. I just, I never even questioned the word, right? Because we just translate it as knowledge, right? But it's actually, I mean, but, you don't, yeah. you don't really think about it because wisdom is learning when to apply the right ruling in the right instance. Yeah. So. Anyway, so um, you mentioned uh, many contemporary issues. What are some of the contemporary issues that Islamic biomedicine um, seeks to engage with? You mean Islamic bioethics? Sorry, Islamic bioethics. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that those who are in the field of creating responses to the field of bioethics, any, all of these topics, any, all topics, right? So um, they're the ones that have never been fully closed. Like when, when, what is life and what is death? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're ones that are newer. We want to talk about AI, right? Uh, and how we use AI responsibly, right? Um, 
in the United States context, there's been a reopening the notion of, of, of abortion because of what happened. So, so I, I think that there, you know, there was a good study, I don't remember, but there was a, um, I think by Nuffield Council of Bioethics in the UK that talks about, you know, here are the, for the next 50 years, here are the top issues we think are gonna happen um, and that are gonna be bioethical relevance and then Muslims sort of write on that. Um, so I, I can't, I mean, I think okay, there are, okay. there's so many issues to talk about uh, that have never been closed, right? And they just push boundaries. Let me, let me, let me though, however, give this idea that that we talked about my other the other collection that came out, Islam Biomedicine, and inshallah we have another couple of things coming out as well. I think that bioscience pushes our understanding of the human being in ways no other science does. The human being, what we think of the human being. And I'll give you examples. Like so, there. I would say there are five fundamental existential questions of the human being. What's its origin? Bioscience is an answer for that. What's this? What is it? Bioscience is an answer for that. What's its capacities? Bioscience. Is it unique? Bioscience is an answer for that, right? Um, what is this feature? Bioscience is an answer for that, right? Evolution, right? Where it came from, um, right? What is it? It's a mechanistic body. Right, it's supervenience to create consciousness upon the main brain functions. Right, what's this capacities? We have codes to tell us what your predilections will be for genetic codes, for example. Right, epigenetics after that, environmental factors. What's this future? It'll become what? Dirt, decomposed, be recycled. Right, is it unique in the universe? Well, maybe exotheology will tell us whether, right? But we say maybe there are other makallafs in this in the universe, maybe AI will be mukallaf, right? It has the capacity. Bioscience pushes our understandings of the human being in ways we don't fathom. So we do bioethics, but those those notions of the human being lead to the questions of ethical import. Mm -hmm. So your notion of awaliyat, let's figure out those concepts, right? Forget about now we can talk about health, disease, life, death. What's the human being? Then we can start talking about bioethics. You know, you know, you just posed, proposed an interesting question, right? Um, whether or not AI could be mukallaf, whether they could be held liable, um, and if you know, yeah, you know, I, and I think all these movies, these sci-fi movies in the '90s and 2000s, they they were really people who saw what the future was going to be, or they were trying to push people into this direction. Um, but you know, so you mentioned AI. You, you recent, not recently. But uh, you were you were at a conference on AI um, in bio uh, in bioethics, I believe, in Pakistan some time ago. Um, do you mind just sharing anything related to the topic of AI and bioethics? Well, I mean, that was I think Islamic ethics and AI. That was a conference. Okay. Uh, colleagues of mine, you know, Dr. Junaid Qadir and Aman Al Qib, sort of uh, uh, held that up. And I think they were just trying to figure out an ethical framework, right? One coming from computer science, one coming from Islamic ethics. What is an ethical framework? Uh, for how we responsibly use AI techniques. Now, AI, we were not, they were not talking about general AI or super, right, uh, or like sort of sentient AI. They were talking about how do we use techniques of AI responsibly because there are ethical issues, right? That, that, um, give me some issues. Yeah, maximizing functions. Do we maximize safety, right? Do we maximize utilitarian functions? Do we maximize what sort of principles govern that? Um, and they wanted to create a framework by which Islamic principles would be used and meshed in those sort of uses of AI, right? Um, that was the conference. I think what, what, what was interesting for me being there, mashallah, may Allah bless the people who put it on and the people in Pakistan, there's a real appetite that there's a school for people, right? Young students want to engage with these topics. 
and alhamdulillah there were some ulama who gave who gave some talks at the conference so it was really interesting and that they're trying to come up with a multidisciplinary approach but it was the same thing that that we're disconnected from centers where these things are produced mm-hmm. right so the, just unfortunately or fortunately we're right but unfortunately we are disconnected from the centers of knowledge producing ai techniques right from the get-go we're responding to something that's happening mm-hmm. in the silicon valley and we're responding with the individuals that we have they use certain vocabularies that may or may not actually measure how the field has moved forward right so i want to say to you that that yes we have techniques historically we talked about automation uh right we've uh, scholars have written about automated things can we do a little with a machine like all these things they've talked about but um but the, the discourse is at a really elementary level right can we make an ai machine that has a face or is this going to be the surah business from our creating surahs like we did talk about paints or painting mm-hmm. or photos yeah i mean that's a, a, that's a 40 year old discourse i mean that's not the issue that we're dealing with but the vocabularies by which they're engaging or the sorry the imagination with which they're engaging still is somewhat dated from what's actually happening tomorrow in silicon valley right I mean, you know, we're so detached. I mean, if you read some of the reports of the Pentagon, right? And the Pentagon is the information that's released from the Pentagon is like five, 10 years old. Right. But they've already released information of them trying to create these robot soldiers, Correct. Who are, which are humans. But, you know, they have these uh, they have these shoes that they can run in, in which, you know, they're running, I think, like 50, 60 kilometers in. They're making changes to the body. And so this is information that's out there. And so. The question is, is, well, what's the information that hasn't been shared and how far ahead are they of us? So you're right. saying that the questions that, you know, like you dealt with at the conference are really like 40, 50 year old questions. Well, they deal. They were trying to come up with a framework, right? Because they recognize, the individuals recognize these are questions. To get to answer those contemporary questions, we first have to get people to understand where the history is, what are the, what are the questions okay. are and then move forward, right? So so they wanted to create a historical trajectory and get the right sort of working group and dynamics and methodologies together and not simply do, which my, my talk was like, oh, not simply do what we've done. If you want to learn from Islamic bioethics, learn that it's not simply fiqh, right? Learning you need multidisciplinary and it's disciplinarity, right? Learn that you have to understand the epistemology of the science itself, right? You have to be connected with the industry. So, so that was my sort of thing that if you want to learn, don't say the model is Islamic finance, Islamic bioethics, or Islamic psychology. You might have to come up with a different one, but there are certain think failures of those fields that you can now engage with, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, learn from so that you engage in a different way. Um, Alhamdulillah, was a, it was a great conference. It was, it was, it was interesting. As I said to you, I'm, I was amazed by the young students and doctoral students who were kind of engaged with these topics. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that is definitely with with the with the age of technology that we live in. Um, there are a lot of pressing issues, and AI is definitely one of the ones with some people believing that AI will lead to the end of humanity. Um, Even AI itself believes that. <laughs> I tweeted out about that. So. We, we, did a, we did a podcast titled um, Transhumanism, the Death of Humanity. Right. Um, if anybody's interested, which we, which we went more in depth into AI. Um, but yeah, so I want to I shift the conversation a bit now to some of, some of the questions which I've had for some time. Um, there, there was one, there's a lady, um, a sister very close to me, who, um, you know, Allah have mercy on her, Allah grant her shifa, who has cancer. And so she had once asked me, um, you know, whether or not it was permissible for her not to take chemotherapy, knowing that if she didn't take chemo, she would die. So my question to you is just on on this topic of uh, near-death treatment, 
Um, do you mind just sharing some thoughts? Sure. So, so may Allah make it easy for her and those who are in similar states where they need to have guidance, right? Uh, and and I'll say that obviously I'm not going to, um, I'm I'm not in a position to give uh, fatwas on this topic, but I do think that individuals should consult their scholars uh, who they trust, who are well read and can give them fatwas with particular circumstances. But but I can share with you the fundamental building blocks of a response to that question, right? And and what has already been an accepted. Um, uh, what's the word? Orthopraxy within the the, the fiqaha around around notions of health uh, of of not pursuing medical treatment. So so at the base level, we should recognize for various reasons that seeking medical treatment has not been judged to be in the Sunni tradition a fadl, right? It's not wajib. You're not sinful for not seeking for various reasons, including the notion that Allah SWT is the one who can control, or sends right? he sends out illness and cure, and he can cure people without the need for taking medication per se or, or treatments, right? Uh, so so that recognition that it's his dominion, as as Ibrahim uh, says, in the Quran. So so that's that's the notion, one. Secondly, Rasulullah all he did command individuals, and the command form is used, to ya ibadullah, right? Um, that that was taken as a recommendation, so not follow the wajib, but as a recommendation within the Shafi school. Other schools said that was just a you know a shadi, um, and and they did not want to, and they said that because they weren't sure that the treatment would bring about cure. Right? There was a at that time and even now that there is a lack of full certainty about treatment giving you cure. There are other things as well. I mean, I can expand on that if you like, but that led to this baseline hukum that. It's not followed except for when it's life-saving and there's certainty about or, or curing or relieving some symptoms from the disease, right? So that's the level of certainty. Now, some people will say scholars, certainty means certainty, yaqini, 100%. Some say there's a lot about the lun, greater than 51% or 51% or greater. Um, that's where the conversation still occurs uh, today. So then for the, applying that to the case, when I'm asked to be an ethics consultant, I say, okay, well, what are the doctors telling you, right? So doctor's language, again, right? Our language, we have, interestingly, we have a very fine language around nuanced around epidemiology and prognostication. We actually have data to tell us. So are they saying that you should? Are they saying they recommend? Are they saying that this is what will happen based on case series or data? So if the, right, and, and that would then set the ruling in motion. So the woman does not necessarily need to take medical treatment when she's saying she will certainly die. Well, then the question is now, is this life-saving, right? And is that certainly will die, right? Uh, and what is that certainty behind that? So I think that's the interrogation people need to do. I will say even then it becomes a challenge of, okay, well, um, who is the decision maker? So when we say certainly will die, right, is it the, you are a couple for yourself, right? So say this, I'm going to add the two case. The individual says, I don't want to take treatment. And, but then she becomes unconscious and her husband, right? Or son or whatever is now the, the, the one who's in caretaking responsibility has, is the wali of, that's a different hukum now for the wali than mm -hmm. it was for her. She, you couldn't force her to take some treatment, but now you're the wali, you have to think about her best interests. And do you override? Right, what she said, because you are also now sinful if you don't follow through something that's wajib, right? 
So, mm. so it becomes much more nuanced that they're different actors or the physicians. They was a Muslim physician. How do you counsel a patient who's refusing care? Okay, fine. But now what about your moral culpability to give them full, you know, full treatment if it has to be? So, so that's kind of the, the, the way I do ethics consults. First think about what the science is telling you, then the boundary positions from our tradition, then let's work through your case and play out each scenario to see what the moral dimensions are for each actor. And then we can help think about where you should go. And in the end, obviously, the makalaf is the makalaf, right? They're the ones who have to responsible for So, you know, it's their choice. We just advise. Mm -hmm. there, there's another, uh, there's a number of interesting questions that emerge from here. Um, so for instance, you have this individual who does, who believes that, uh, who has been diagnosed with cancer and has stated that they don't want treatment, knowing that their friends circle around them. There's been people who have who, are, who have taken chemotherapy and who have passed away. The doctor has said that it's already stage three, right? So like for this specific individual, like it's stage three already when they found out. So there's the doctors will say there's a low percent, 10, 20 percent chance that you'll actually um, overcome it. In this instance, the individual now has the if the individual decides that they don't want to take it. It would be uh, it, it would be it would be fine, correct? Well, that's what you're asking me for a fatwa, and I'm going to give one. I'm giving you a boundary positions to think about, right? I'm thinking but, hypothetical. I'm thinking hypothetical. No, but, but but still, the boundary positions, right? Because you have to take rulings and then specify them to a case, I and mean, that's how tradition works, right? So what uh, you have to think about the case. So so playing out the other dimensions that you added. So so let, let's let's take this. So this 10 to 20 percent chance of what? Are we talking about survival? Surviving. Survival. Right? We're talking about five-year survival. We're talking about one-year survival. And we also know that beyond medical treatments in our tradition, there's an ontology, there's a schema of how you get about healing, right? We say, let's go drink Zamzam, right? And and there's Shifa, we know, right? There's, there are other ways about which we can seek healing or cure from Allah SWT. So when the patient's saying, I don't want treatment, are they saying, I don't want this specific chemo modality? I want other modalities that are more consistent and aligned with my tradition. Or she's saying, I don't want to do anything. I right? don't want chemo. We see. So my point is now, okay, well, then now that we think about it, we don't want chemo. And is there is a chemo reason because I think there are side effects from chemo? Or is it because I think the chemo is just not efficacious? So are there alternate ways to think, okay, well, we can change the chemo regimen or you can do something, right? Something else. Maybe there are other treatments that people take, adjuvant therapies, for example. So it becomes very fine and specific to the case. And you can't sort of say, yeah, you don't have to, like, you can have to take treatment. But if the issue is one of ease, convenience, facilitation, or if it's like, I don't believe this chemo regimen will work, okay. And the doctor's telling you that there is no basis that it's going to save your life or there's a minimal change between the five year survival, okay. Right? I mean, that's my point where it has to be at this case level, which is also why, why I'm demonstrating for you and your audience that blanket fatwas don't, this is really problematic. And individuals who cannot interrogate the data flows, informational streams, shouldn't be giving fatwa in these domains. Mm -hmm. My my view. I'm not saying I'm giving fatwa. I'm saying, but you have to figure out these multiple levels, right? So when we give, hey, okay, you don't have to take treatment, or what is the case involving? What's the question that they're answering? What data has the doctor provided? It's a dialogue, and oftentimes muftis are not involved in that dialogue with the patient or the provider can't ask the right questions, then you get these weird answers, right? So some people, for instance, will say, 
I'm in this position where I need to, where the doctor's saying to do chemo, but um, Islamically, I don't, I don't have to take chemo. And right. so therefore, I'm just going to sit this one out, maybe do some hijama, drink some uh, Zamzam water, and that's it. Yeah, sure. I mean, if, if I mean, that might be a viable option for someone because they're living right now. They're not applying the immediate treatment that's life-saving, right? Mm -hmm. Because the, what's why are we seeing this life-saving thing? Because you're not morally allowed in our tradition to take your own life, right? Mm -hmm. And there are various allowances, even if the case becomes where you're taking haram things to save your life, where some fiqh says it's actually obligatory to take. Some won't say that. Many mm -hmm. Right. So the point of all that is to what removes sin from the individual. So the individual says, hey, look, this particular instance is not one of life saving quality with certainty. OK, and there medicine is all about not having certainty, mm -hmm. right, about certain things. I mean, about most things. But in certain realms, there is certainty. Right. In certain areas, we can say, hey, here's the epidemiological data that you don't do this. I'll give you an example that's more clear cut, right? So say someone, take your chemotherapy out of it. Say someone says that I um, don't want to have a tracheostomy. I can't breathe. They're on a ventilator. They don't want the ventilator. And after three weeks, usually we want to take you, or less than that sometimes, take you out and put a tracheostomy here because that causes infectious risk, right? And you have to be sedated. But if you have a tracheostomy, you don't need to be on sedation, right? And it's much easier to kind of has low risk of infection. So someone says, I don't want the surgery to have a tracheostomy. Okay. Mm -hmm. And okay, you don't want to have the surgery to having tracheostomy. Doctor says, well, we can't keep this higher risk for you to be on a ventilator and you're on a bed for like, you're already been in the ICU for this. You'll be sedated the entire time. But the person says, I don't want a surgery. So now the doctors say, we can't put you on the vent any longer because it's causing you harm. You have infections. We need to do this. You say, I don't want to do it. That's a life-saving question, right? Because hmm. if you said, I don't want the surgery, what's the what's going to happen? You will die because you can't keep someone on a vent that long without having harms, hmm. right? You will die. So when the situation is now, I will die, and I certainly know that if I'm not able to breathe, right, I will die, then what's the hukum there? There's no okay option. Like you, this clear cut, you will die. I'm mm -hmm. telling you, you will die. Now, yeah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala might have a miracle, but the point is that if we can't get you off a vent and you don't want the machine and the surgery, you will die. Now tell me the moral culpability. Now someone says I don't want to do it, okay. But we're just trying to tell you where sin might reside. Allah alim. Mm -hmm. But that's sinful potentially because of a clear notion of what will happen, right? Not many cases are like that, right? But that's why our tradition sort of says you have to have that yaqini, life-saving notion. So in that instance, if you know that from yeah, you know that out of yaqin, out of 100% certainty that if, for example, somebody gets into a car accident and now they need to have um, they need to have surgery and you know um, they have to be paralyzed for their entire life. But by doing the surgery, they will survive. And Is without it, the surgery, they will die. Yeah. Right? But, That's but, 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 but doing the surgery will make them paralyzed and live, you know, stuck in a bed for their entire life. So that, that, that is the, the, the question of, well, we have a problem here because 
in the Islamic tradition, although I've written a paper and some scholars say there's this notion, what is quality of life, right? Is is any life quality of life, ultimate quality of life, or is there are there gradations of quality of life? But I won't have this. You have the absolute right to say, I don't want this, right? I mean, no one's going to, if there is a measure, we can tell you that we think as advisors, that religious advisors, that you might be sinning should you do that. But there's many sins people do. But this is this this is a sin. But my life. No, no. Okay. But Hibs and Nafs is not the is not the in my reading is not the ultimate um, value, right? Actually, in the Maqaz, Hibs al Din might be Hibs al Islam. So this would be a fall into Hibs al Islam, right? But but my point being, we both come together. But my point point being here that there's someone else has to do something to prevent someone from taking that action, right? We don't lock people up who mm -hmm. make do sin. So if they're going to sin, they're going to sin. And that's, and we're going to say, maybe that's sinful. Maybe you make Dola, whatever, whatever. And maybe you won't have time to make Dola because you'll die. I don't, my point mm -hmm. is that you're not going to force someone to live in a state where they are already adamant about not doing that. Right. There's an interesting classic case in bioethics called the case of Dax that we learned about where someone sustained enormous amount of, burns in their body and his caregivers i forgot who it was but his parents or whatever really put him through the ringer to get skin grafts and rehab and all other stuff and you see these videos they're online him screaming yelling i don't want this i don't want this i'm in pain right for for months and weeks then you flip five years later and the person's like i'm i think he said you know i'm glad i don't remember that word but i'm thankful for life Similarly, people are paralyzed and may Allah protect us all. Hmm. People, there are studies on this. They imagine what being paralyzed will look like and they are like, this would be horrible. But then when you ask them later on when they are paralyzed, what their quality of life is or how they're living, they're grateful or they're thankful. For me, for you as a Muslim, you might say one moment of being able to make a stiqfar might be the worth of all my life, right? If I had that one moment to be sincere to Allah SWT, and by that one moment or that one act I did, I get Jannah. I mean, we have so many, so many narrations of that. Maybe that is what we need. One moment of clear-mindedness, if I can find that one moment. But maybe for others, it's not. You know, like, Allah take me, you know, and we make this dua that we're taught by Rasulullah mean, If there's khayr in life, right, keep me here. If there's no khayr in death, then keep death wafat in right? And tuafat khayr minni, right? So if there's if uh, uh so if there is death that is better for me than bring about death i mean our tradition is balanced we're supposed to taught this to us mm -hmm. but do you, but i understand what you're saying are you saying that there is just this one opinion like in, in this instance you know um if you know that there's yaqeen you know you have to be doing this so what I'm saying, and the boundary position is this: that only, only sin, only wajib or fadl is when there is notion that that two or th well, okay, I'm giving you the classic opinion. I'll give you the more contemporary. But but the classical opinion, right? And you, uh, you re readers can look up papers on this, right? This paper myself and Sheikh Omar on this, and there's others uh, on this specific rulings goes to the formal that I have in the Sunni school. Uh, if life of treatment is known to be life-saving because the analogy used is of an individual who's bleeding to death they know they can stop their bleeding by applying some sort of salve or tying a ligature or whatever right tourniquet they refuse to do so 
that is just to be someone who's culpable for suicide. That's the boundary point, right? So someone who knows that treatment exists and that can be applied with some would say, or yaqeen, to stop that you are deemed sinful, the sin being levied similar to that of committing suicide. Mm-hmm. Okay? okay. So, so that sets up that the bar is high and you know the treatment. Beyond that, right, you're not required necessarily to have apply any sort of treatment. The other marker that I've used and that I've used to sort of say is the quality of life thing we just talked about, right? So, so generally, if an individual, what is life-saving? Life-saving could be any sort of life, right? But perhaps one that I often talk about is the notion of being able to regain mukallaf status. So someone being in a state of paralyzed is still in mukallaf, right? But as someone being in this liminal state of minimal conscious for the rest of whatever, right? Maybe they won't have mukallaf status. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they're not able to share change their afterlife by being in that state. And we know that every treatment, the scholars of every treatment, impacts your hurma and karama, the sanctity and availability of the body. Every treatment in that state, right? So those harms might accrue and overweigh the benefits of treatment that is judged to be futile because you have to, IV is harming the integrity of the body, right? Mm-hmm. Being in the ICU, being in the hospital. So, so you have to balance the hormone karama of the individual being violated by the benefits in the treatment. If the treatment is not known to have benefits, particularly if they're not life-saving benefits, then you're okay to forego. Mm-hmm. And, and as I said, I think that the reason for that is because the ulama and fuqa don't want to levy sin on everybody. Because imagine if they said, no, you have to take treatment when we know it's beneficial. That would mean that everybody's sinning for not taking, you know, Tylenol, um, mm-hmm. or whatever else, right? It would be it would be very hyper sort of notion, hyper religious. Uh, and just quickly, uh, Doctor Doctor Awesome, what was the name of the article that you and Doctor Omar uh, wrote? Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's, I think it's called "We Can But Must We," right? Reasoning the exercises of scholars. It's, it's, I think that's called "We Can But Must We." Um, and then there's another article where he's the lead author um, in Zygon, I believe, about the same issue. But okay. I, I would have to look up the titles. Um, okay. But Please but send them to me. If you're a Google scholar then... and they look up Qureshi and Padella, you'll find it so far. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll link them in the bio for this podcast. Um, but Dr. Awesome, the reason why I keep stressing this is because for me, you know, I just imagine someone uh, who's in that position who has to make such a difficult situation maybe it's on behalf of themselves or maybe it's on behalf of someone else and perhaps that decision could um and that decision is life-threatening so for instance if i make the wrong decision i might be held accountable uh for suicide or if i'm held accountable for somebody else and i deem that you know i don't want you know you know something within a person's body and that they're being paralyzed and so i deem without their permission that you know they should just that they should just be put down then am I yeah. liable for murder? <laughs> right, that's that. Yeah, right, right. right. Liable for for culpable homicide. Right, exactly. So these, yeah. I think these are very terrifying questions, and uh, and on top of that, associated with these major but, but, major. But, but, so let me let me make it less less terrifying. Withdrawing, withholding life support, which is the m- way that most individuals die in the United States. Right, two million of the two and a half million deaths in the United States. Each year occur by 
conversations around withdrawing or withholding life support. Okay, 80%, almost. You want to, so withholding, withdrawing is are different things, but the question is, okay, well, if I withhold life support, then they're going to die, right? If I withdraw life support, they're going to die, right? Mm -hmm. But the question is, does medicine offer something other to restore that individual to a different state? So, so when you're thinking about this, this terrifying because I'm culpable. Okay, yeah. So if you think that there's a treatment that someone can be restored, right? That's the point of, of medicine to restore people to health, and we refuse to do that for that individual, then you should feel this is this weighty, right? Whether that be because someone said don't do it, or whether because we feel we're worried about financial constraints or whatever else it might be, right? So it is a weighty decision, and you mm -hmm. should feel that way. But the ulama have made it easy for you to think about taking recommendations from physicians and others who are experts in that domain of whether or not this treatment or this course of action is going to restore individuals to a life worth living. They're not asking you to maintain someone in an ICU and sedation, mm -hmm. right? Ad nauseum until something catastrophic happens. That the point is to circumscribe the zone of obligation to a very small area so you can live your mm -hmm. lives and have other determinants influence that decision making. Because if you open that, then you, then that, yeah, okay, well, by the general notion, life saving, that means, okay, someone's living, they have a heartbeat, they're living. Mm -hmm. Keep everything going until that heartbeat's gone. You can imagine a society like that. Mm -hmm. We would have, Muslim societies don't have the finances to do that. What burden that would be. And so that the point is to lift your lift your burden, not to right to make you weigh down, but the weightiness of the decision. Yeah, mm -hmm. because if at one point is individual suicide, the other is homicide. So how do I get rid of that sin by doing something that's within the fold of the tradition? Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm overplaying it because at the end of the day, but 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 I I don't want to give a crass answer to your audience, right? By saying okay, Mashi, uh, just live your life. I want you to recognize that these are big decisions, which is why individuals who are asking these questions need to really write it all down and think, well, what is the question I'm asking? And those who are giving advice should also have weightiness, right? Of what are we at? What am I talking about? Mm -hmm. So essentially you're saying that for the people who are listening, if they're in a position like this, you would say that uh, they would need to consult with both doctors and their local fuqaha, their, you know, their imams. Yeah, because we have to ask the right question. Oftentimes, we're not skilled. So uh, one of my big projects is about around, uh, you know, death decisions. We, as a community, when we're told to make much mention of the destroyer of pleasure, right? we don't do that. We don't talk about death. We don't talk about what our end is. We don't talk about how. We don't talk about good, what a good death looks like, right? But we have all of this in our... Uh, all these recommendations are tradition about that and so we reach this point of being in the hospital and not know what to do we never had a conversation no one's written anything down even if you didn't write it down right that's okay but no one talked about it and so now we're like okay well the doctors say this doctors say that and then we ask someone who doesn't understand you know biostatistics or doesn't understand what they were talking about and then we use wrong information to make decisions and then we all feel bad i mean that's the normal output of, of mm -hmm. these conversations so i'm saying think about it in advance Right, have conversations and events. What would you like to, what, you know, what does death look like to you? What's a good death look like to you? What are the sorts of questions that we should know about, right? Whether it's about organization you mentioned or whether about what kind of, uh, you know, 
death you deem is death in the tradition. So I'll give you, I'll give you uh, listeners a project that I have not been able to embark upon, but we want to embark upon it. Um, involves three things. One, one is when we think about advanced directives, right? To have a notion, okay, what, what do we think Islamically? You as an individual, right? Is acceptable form of death or, or criteria for death in Islam? To your notion. Right, so it could be brain death. We didn't talk about that. It could be cardiac death. Right, there's debates on, on, on brain death, but there are some states that allow you to have exemptions from brain death because of religious convictions. Some allow you to have accommodations for brain death. I mean, before they do the exam, they would ask you for informed consent. N most people on the bench who are making decisions don't know that, and most people who are advising them don't know that. Mm -hmm. But we should have a notion. Okay, this is the sort of death in my will and my whatever that I think is logically consistent with the Islamic tradition, right? Then what sorts of kind of medications, not medications, what's kind of organ donation decisions you want to make, right? What types of organs to whom, when, what does it look like? Okay. Then what's, then ACP talks about what kind of treatments, right? Do you want to forego and Africa? We all talk about DNR, but DNR is not really, uh, the, what's DNR? Question. That's the right, DNR is do not resuscitate, right? If my heart stops, do not resuscitate. you can certainly fill those questions and things out, but they talk about these living wills talk about, you know, do I want to have this sort of quality of life or that quality of life and so on and so forth. And in the Islamic tradition, we, you can't really make that decision in a sense and be binding because you don't really know. Some people might know, but most people don't know. So it's more about having a conversation. Okay, well, you know, I don't want to be in this sort of state. I don't want to be in that sort of state and having a conversation with your family about what that looks like, what a good death looks like. And then we kind of have this form. We also have had conversation, uh, but it's, it's very nuanced because it's state law interacts with who's your decision maker, right? We might have priorities of decision makers, state law, all the state, almost all the states have their own priority. And it might go against some of our families have weird family relationships. Sometimes people have two wives or three wives, right? Some people have estranged parents and who do you want making decisions for you? You have to spell that out. Who's your wali? They're culpable. We don't do that. So that's one form thing. The second thing is actually how to meet that, right? So there's a, uh, th there are very few manuals that we can find contemporary that talk about how do you think about a good death, right? Beyond the conversations. So we have Rasulullah's example, mm -hmm. right? But we don't talk about that enough or engage with that enough. The Catholic Church, when the pandemic, not this pandemic, when the Black Plague was happening, had these books, manuals called Ars Moriende. Ars Moriende was still used in 19th century United States, initially from the Catholic Church, but then the other uh, Christian denominations amended it, right, for their own needs. Or is a Muslim response? We just went through a pandemic, man. People were dying left and right. What do we do? So we are imbibing the death-defying culture and not knowing the yaqeen, which is in the Quran, right? Hatta yaqeen, yaqeen, right? The yaqeen is certainly his death, but we have not prepared for it. So that's mm -hmm. the large project. And I haven't been able to engage with it because I'm all immersed with this academic stuff, but also because you need to bring all these people together and you have a funding stream and say, okay, let's think about state laws. What state laws have what? Let's think about what forms people need. Let's think about the hadith. Let's think about this manual, right, of the good death from Islamic tradition. And we're not there as a community, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a very interesting point. You know, I've done a, num a number of khutbahs on death. I've done a number of podcasts on death, but... You know, you forget about this aspect of death, which is the, prep, the 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 material preparation behind it. We talk about the spiritual preparation always, but the material preparation of you know when we talk about Islamic wills, right? Like, what are you going to leave behind? Who are you going to leave behind? 
if in a specific instance this happens to you, what do you want the response to be? Um, so I think you know, you know, it, it's a very it's a very pertinent topic in today's age, especially like you mentioned, we're just coming out of a pandemic. Right. So I, yeah, I'll share with you. So I, I would like to hear Qudlas. Maybe you can give me some guidance. <laughs> but but you know the, the the thing that's interesting is is. I, I see as someone who people reach out to both ulama, lay people and others, right? As just some liaison between these sort of domains of knowledge. I see the problems of that, right? So 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 I, I'll 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 tell you there was a case, a legal case in the law in court, right, where a Muslim family was argue, brought a suit against a hospital system because the hospital system wanted to withdraw life support. Right, and the, well, I, there's several cases like this, but this one I, it was recent during the pandemic, and they said that the they can't withdraw life support because it's anti our tradition, our religious tradition, which which is first principle is heads and nafs, right, preservation of life. They had an imam, a local imam, give them some sort of writing that you should keep your family member on life support at that time in the pandemic, which was on a ventilator, right? Just keep them on because heads and nafs is 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 a thing to prioritize. And they said that this this healthcare system is is discriminating against our religion, mm -hmm. right? That was the suit. And what was interesting was that the healthcare system I, I they sought me out for guidance, and they wanted me to be help adjudicate this matter or whatever. They wanted me to be the expert witness for them, because they said, well, the individual themselves has some sort of living will that talks about not wanting to be on you know life support. If they can't come back to walking on talking, whatever it was, right? Mm -hmm. And then the treatment that we're applying here, this ventilator, more than half the people die on the ventilator, right? Like this is not a cure. Yeah, yeah. This is a pandemic. The person got COVID. What what are we talking about? But we certainly don't want them to go to the press and have these Muslims saying that we're discriminating against them because the everybody's worried about the healthcare system right now. Yeah. And and I thought it was very interesting because that family said went to the legal court file the case, had an imam say something, right? And then and then I said, I don't want to be, I don't want to be sitting across from an imam and cross-examination telling him why he's wrong or why I'm right or why I, I'm not doing that. But it's all misinterpretation of what's happening here, right? There is no treatment, right? There is no treatment. And I mean, what are you, like, uh, you know, it was really problematic. And so I said, what I want to do is I want to have a conversation with the family. And they said, well, we can't do that. So they asked me to give some testimony. I said, before it goes to court, we have this, right? And and I spoke to the family, and so the imam, I said, the imam is quoted some papers, and I, our fatwa is from Majmah Fiqh, and then I said, well, here's my my exposition of that fatwa. Like, like read the fatwa, like understand what they sort of said, right? As opposed to just quoting the fatwa. And then and then the imam didn't show up. I said, let's have a mediation. They don't want to show up. And I was so I said, listen, this is I, this is not an issue of against Islam. There, this is right. We just don't understand the concept, the dialogue that's happening here. What's going on? It's just a lack of information and understanding, right? And if there was an Islamic issue here, I would be on your team, telling them that they're they're trampling upon our faith, religious freedom. But there isn't because we don't understand what's happening. Hmm. And that's what I, I'm saying. Right? That's one example of a, when we went to court. We went to court, right? They got lawyers. They got lawyers. They wanted to put Islam Muslims against each other. It was like this phenomenal. And I and I wrote this long statement. I said, just take this statement. In the end, Alhamdulillah, they withdrew life support. 
but but they weren't given the tools to think about that. Mm-hmm. And 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 so that's my concern that we have tropes and elementary understandings, and then obviously in an environment where we fear that there's all these people out to get Muslims, right? We will be heightened to that sensitivity. And I have data behind that for Muslim patients, but I'm just telling you that it's our our we just don't have good 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 tools and resources and understandings, right? But there's also another element, which is the emotional element. Yeah. Right? So counselors, right? So a, a person sees, you know, their family member on life support, and you know they, they see that the person's still alive, right? You know, because because they're still on life support. But the doctor tells them that you know the person's basically dead. But it's for the person to let go in that moment is so difficult that they will find every excuse possible. Who knows how many imams they went to before they went to that imam? No, no, I, I agree. I agree with you I, uh, that there's an emotional toll. And so that also, we don't have counselors and advisors there, right, who can speak the language of both Islam and medicine and chaplaincy, whatever else it is. There are many Muslim chaplains who have never studied anything on film, mm-hmm. right? There are many imams who have never set foot inside an ICU, right? They still think of medicine as healing and curing when medicine today, by and large, is about chronic disease management, mm-hmm. right? And there are many patients or individuals, as we are not patients yet, who have never talked to their families about their own medical problems. We have families who right, just don't talk to each other. And we find out, oh, someone passed away. Wow, they had stage four cancer. Oh, I never knew. We don't want to talk about these things. How do, right? How do I, I mean, like we're just, it's, it's a weird, it's weird for Muslims to be at that stage, but that's where we are. And, and, and it's sometimes worse in our industrial nation and in our, in our sort of Middle Eastern nations where 50 years ago, they never saw a tertiary care system. And they hear about, we can do quadruple bypass or, and we can have a artificial heart and we can have, right? Like they've never, the parents died, right? Without primary care. Now we have these mega instruments of the West coming through and we don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to end our conversation here, but well, I, 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 meaning I, I don't think this is a great space for us to leave something. We should talk about something else. But it is just concerning for me, right, that we, we are reacting in a visitor model to an a, a enterprise, right, a biomedical enterprise without the first understandings of how it came to be, what is that? And then we, we always say, scholars say, oh yeah, take the good from the bad. But as you said, like what, what's good and bad in this? Like, right. Where, where are these things uh, happening? So we have to, we have to inshallah ta'ala think about preparing for death in a way that's consistent with our tradition, using, using exemplars from our tradition, thinking about the fiqh needed, thinking about the adab. I started the conversation with adab, right? What's the adab approaching death? What's the akhlaq you have to embody? What are the, yes, and what are the fiqh aspects you need to take care of? We should be doing that. And then when I'm advising my parents or my parents are my responsibility, I'm the wali. Have I, I mean, how many of us ever talked to our parents about, well, what do you want me to do mm-hmm. when you're in that state or God forbid? But Dr. Padilla, I think this, might be a good place to end off on <laughs> <laughs> to end on death yeah okay. um just i mean for me this is a really a wake-up call um of you know trying to begin this conversation with my with my family um and just trying to approach the topic you know we always talk about islamic wills 
Um, actually, we don't talk about Islamic wills enough. Um, and just preparing for death from the material and spiritual reality. So yeah, I will say because you mentioned tools twice now. There are rulings that this this Islamic will or the Islamic construction of will, like the living will that we talk about in healthcare proxy sort of forms, are not necessarily valid. Um, as I just said to you, can you really mm -hmm. know the state that you're going to be in, right? And yet, when we have that written, then the healthcare system will say, okay, that's the values that were put by the individual. You shouldn't overrule them. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's better as the best things to have a conversation. It stands up within court. It stands up within the ethics committees. It stands up, right? And you can really have a conversation around here are the things that I think about. Uh, here what I'm worried about, right? Um, and it's much more nuanced than, okay, I don't want to have antibiotics when I am whatever. Like, I mean, just, just yeah. weird, uh, you know, uh, scenario. I, so I'll, if you want to end with, with death, <laughs> the topic preparing for death, I, I think that what we as a community to do is really to have, there are other communities who do this. So I know there's a, um, for example, you were just going to get this, this thing called death cafes, right? Where they sit around and talk about death and there's some prompts, right? Um, or death with dinner or something, like, uh, right? Where you have these cards, they're just cards to make a conversation, right? And say, okay, well, tonight we're going to come together. We're going to talk about this or that, the other thing, right? That's related to death. So normalize the conversation. Not that you're writing down your will at that point, but you have no conversation. There are many in our community. When I do focus groups on Muslim communities around healthcare challenges, there's so many people who have been traumatized by having to make those decisions with their loved ones. Mm -hmm. They palpably have trauma, right? Uh, and we have no space for them to talk about these sorts of things, right? So I think we should have conversations around that. And then we can get the decisions. But first, normalize the conversation around death, right? Think about the ways we're praying for death. Then we come up with manuals and so on and so forth. But then we can get to the fiqh decisions and so on and so forth that need to be made. So I, would, I wouldn't start with the fiqh as the beginning. I would start with conversation, you know? I wish so I, 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 think that, I think that that's a key point for all of us to end off with is preparing for death, um, asking these tough questions and just having it at the back of our mind because it is also a, an excellent reminder of death right when you actually start looking every night what do you recite when you go and when you wake, and what do you wake up in the morning saying huh alhamdulillah <laughs> he gave me life after i was dead i mean right we say the dua like think about it we say this every morning i mean do we think that the night before we were dying no Right? So, uh, that's Allah takes the souls at the time of sleeping, right? And then He brings them back, right? Whose, whose time is up, He keeps with them. And He brings back those who we, for a portion of time. And uh, may, Allah, may Allah forgive me, I'm, I'm making this, I'm very paraphrasing that first, but that's the point. Mm -hmm. It's there, it's all there. We just, we're, we're at arm's length. Mm -hmm. There's so much more I could say on the topic of death, but I think we'll have to end it there, Dr. Allah, 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 um, you. Thank you so much, for, uh, Jazakumullah Khairan. For anybody who's interested on the subject, Dr. Asim has written a number of excellent publications and excellent books. Um, he's done a number of lectures as well on YouTube. So if you're more interested in this topic, um, feel free to search his name up on YouTube. Um, and please let us know your comments below. Um, let us know maybe some other pressing questions. So, the next time we do this, inshallah, maybe we can talk about a more positive topic. <laughs> Thank you so much. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
Do.